If you will take your Bibles this morning and open with me to Luke chapter 1, verse 39. We began uh, a few weeks ago a study through the book of Luke. I've at least committed to walking through the first seven chapters and 13 messages, and uh, and then I I think I'll do some psalms maybe, and then we'll probably come back and and finish the book. Uh, But this morning, our text is Luke 137, I mean, excuse me, Luke 139, through verse 56, which if you have one of the Red Bibles, is on page 856. Now, John mentioned uh, next week, Jonathan Bain, whom whom we sent out, will be back. I've I've asked him uh, at the beginning of the year, I talked to him and said, I would would love to have you back and uh, preach at some point, and so we settled on next Sunday. So, I'll preach today. Jonathan will be here next week, and then we'll dive more into the book of Luke and uh, a number of consecutive weeks. So, if you think I'm I'm ready to settle down uh, in this book, we'll, we'll get there. Uh, but this morning, we're looking at 139 through 56, and uh, if I haven't mentioned, 856 in the Red Bibles. And if you're able, I want to invite you one more time to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant Word. Luke 1, 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name." And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy, as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever." And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, as we now hear uh, the preaching of Your Word, we pray that You might allow this to be more, that it would not be a, a demonstration of the wisdom of man, but a demonstration of the Spirit of God working in power among us that you would take, uh, one, that you would remind me of what it is that I need to say, that you would bring to mind, perhaps, things that I haven't even planned on saying that you would want me to say, and then that you would allow those words to be empowered so that they might penetrate our hearts, to change us, to conform us more to the image of your glorious, crucified and risen and reigning Son, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. The other day, I was browsing a 
social media site. Not that I recommend that or anything. And I came across someone who asked a question. And the question was, if you could say just one word, just one word to yourself 20 years ago, what would you say? I saw that question. I was a bit provoked by it, so I began thinking. And I struggled, and so I decided that I would just look and see what others said. And I can't remember if it was the first, second, or third comment, but early on, someone said, the word, one word I would say is Amazon. <laughs> and they thought, that's pretty clever, all right? Because the idea is that 20 years ago, I actually tried to look this up. I, I wanted to be able to tell you, if you invested in Amazon stock 20 years ago, you would have done, your money would have increased this much. But I'm not crafty enough on the internet or in economics to find that out. I can tell you, in the last five years, which comes up pretty quickly, um, in the last five years, if you had invested, it would have quadrupled in the last five years, right? So um, I thought, that's well done, Amazon. Good, good one word. The reason I think those kinds of things, people ask those kinds of questions, is because, uh, and, and the reason why we're gripped by them is because I think it is exciting to think, if I knew what the future held, certainly I would make decisions differently now. Or if back then I had known what the future held today, I would have made decisions back then. I think all of us could say if we had known, for example, the increased prices in the last year, we might have bought a few things last year that we've waited until this year to buy. Maybe gallons and gallons of gasoline. <laughs> Stored them in our garages or something. But have we ever given thought to the fact that what we crave so much to know what the future holds, to know how our present actions will impact our future is actually very much unveiled for us in the Scripture. I mean, again and again, the Bible not only tells us what is coming, but actually tells us how the future, what will happen in the future, what will happen in the days to come based on what we do now. For example, Jesus says, do not store up treasure for yourself on earth. Now, he could have left it there, right? We're commanded to obey all that Christ commands. He's made one very clear. But then he goes on to say, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Now, heaven, we're not there yet. So if we put everything that Jesus is saying together, he's saying, I'm telling you right now what you can do with your money. If you're gripped by the Spirit to be a person who is generous and you pour your money into the works of the kingdom of Christ, Jesus is saying, I will tell you what will happen. In the future, when you are with the Lord for eternity, you will find that you have stored up for yourselves treasures that moths cannot eat, that thieves cannot break in and steal. Do you, do you see what he's doing? And so the question then, I think, that, that comes to us, because that's just one example of many. Jesus can also say, if you want to be great in the kingdom… In the future, be a servant now. When you do uh, good works, do not do them in order to impress and be seen by others, but do them in secret, and your Father who sees in secret now will reward you openly then. And so in some way, I think if we pay attention to our Bibles, this very thing that we supposedly long for, wanting to know how our present actions can impact the future with certainty, we have. So then that raises another question, doesn't it? Why then is it 
that so often we do not then abide by what the Bible says we ought to do, knowing full well the impact it will have on the future, and not just any future, but an eternal one. Now, it could be the reason we don't do that at times is because we're ignorant of the Bible. So maybe, for example, this is the first time you're, you're hearing about Jesus, for example, saying that we can use our money now to store up treasure for heaven then. My guess is, though, for most of us, it's not that we're ignorant. And so then the answer to the question may be that we don't really believe. After all, James says, you tell me that you have faith apart from works, I'll show you my faith by my works. James says, if you want to give evidence that you actually believe, you begin living it out. And so, if this is our struggle as believers, that sometimes we fail to truly believe what the Bible says and live in light of it, then it's very good for us to take some time and consider Luke 1, 39 through 56. This text takes place right after the events that we looked at a few weeks ago when we last looked at Luke, after the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and tells her that though she is a virgin, she will bear a son, because the Spirit Himself will, will bring about this conception, and she will carry this Christ child and give birth to Him herself. She will be the mother of our Lord. Well, right after this section then, Jesus, I mean, excuse me, Luke picks back up with, with uh, showing the combination of Elizabeth and Mary together, the two women who have now are going to have what seem to be impossible births, and Elizabeth giving birth to John the Baptist, though she is old and barren, Mary giving birth to Jesus, though she is a virgin. And as we then look at their encounter, as they get together and begin exchanging dialogue in Luke 1, 39-56, what I want us to see… <clears throat> is one truth about God's Word and two truths about how God acts. Now, I'll just number these one, two, three as far as sermon points, but that's what I'm going to do. One truth about God's Word and two, truth about how, two truths about how God acts. And my hope is that as we then put those together, we'll find ourselves being in the position as if we're given, like that individual saying, 20 years ago, I wish I had told myself Amazon because that would affect how I made decisions. My hope now is that after we see these two truths about how God acts, after we see this one truth about what God's Word is, that it will impact how we live in the present now. The truth about God's Word that I want us to see is very simple, and it's this. God's Word is true. God's Word is true. As Luke opens our section, he writes in verses 39 and 40, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, when Luke says, you'll note there in verse 39, she arose and went with haste. So Luke wants us to know that apparently... After the angel Gabriel told Mary, you're going to bear a son, though you're a virgin, you'll be uh, overshadowed, overcome by the Holy Spirit, and, and, and the Christ child will be conceived in your womb. Apparently, at that point, she does not go and communicate to her betrothed husband Joseph. There's not, no mention of that. There's, there's no mention of any other actions. Apparently, she just gets herself and goes. She's headed off to Judah because she wants to speak to her relative Elizabeth, whom the angel has told is also expecting a child. Now, 
From what I've read in commentaries, the trip from where Mary would have been to where Elizabeth would have been is an 80 to 100-mile journey. This is quite a commitment. And my guess is that she's eager to go and speak to Elizabeth because uh, she wants to, to celebrate with her that both of them have been given news that the seemingly impossible, each of them bearing a child, is coming about. Now, if she's eager to see Elizabeth because it will be an opportunity for each of them to share what's happened and kind of get encouraging and fun words, the reality is Mary gets much more than she's expecting. Luke tells us in verse 41 that after she gets there, after her 80 to 100-mile journey, she walks in and the baby, John the Baptist, Elizabeth is about six months pregnant now, the baby in her womb, John the Baptist, leaps up within her as Mary comes. Now, that alone would have been a very encouraging thing to happen. I mean, could you imagine if, if Elizabeth had said to Mary, Mary, when you walked in, just your presence coming into the room caused the baby within me to leak up, leap up. They could have both sat and shared stories. You had Angel Gabriel came to me. He came to me as well. And, and they could have sat and reasoned together, wow, it really looks like God is up to something. But much more than that happens. It's not just that the baby leaps up in her womb, but at the end of verse 41, Luke notes for us, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, which is his way of indicating to us that what Elizabeth is about to say is a word of prophecy. Elizabeth begins to prophesy. In verse 41, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 42, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, again, can you just note the kindness of God here? Mary believed what the angel Gabriel told her. We know that's true because not only did Luke tell us in that text, but Elizabeth confirms in verse 45, blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of, spoken, of what the Lord had spoken to her. So Mary believed what the angel said to her, that, that the Christ was going to be conceived in her womb, that she would give birth to the Messiah, the Lord God, though she was a virgin. And yet, the Lord still gives her word of confirmation. Elizabeth, as Mary comes, is filled with the Spirit and not only prophesies, yes, you actually are pregnant. The, the Christ child is, is now going to grow in your womb. But she declares about Mary in verse 43 that she is the mother of my Lord. In other words, Mary, yes, the one in your womb whom you will name Jesus, He is the God-man. In other words, what happens in these first few verses is Luke is showing us in this conversation between these two women that God's Word, what God had spoken, is true. It's coming about. Now, that's how our text begins. It's also how our text ends. 
After Elizabeth says this to Mary, which of course you can just imagine the the confirming, kind nature that that Mary feels loved by God because he's gone to the extent of saying, you believed, but let me just show you again that what I've said is true. Mary breaks out in song. The song is called the Magnificat. That that comes from the Latin term for for the word magnifies that you'll see in verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord. This is the song she sings. We'll go over it in detail in a second, but I want you to note the last couple of verses in the Magnificat, verses 54 and 55. After noting this song, she says in verse 54, He, that is God, has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. In other words, Mary ends the song saying, Lord, and the reason you're doing this is because you told our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that you would do it. In other words, the text begins with Elizabeth and Mary saying, God has fulfilled His word. And it ends with Mary saying, God, you have fulfilled your word. This section is bracketed by Luke reminding the reader, reminding us that God's word is true. It is true. It is trustworthy. It is reliable. As we've said many times, when you pick up the Bible and you read or you say something like, the Bible says, that is the equivalent of saying, God says. Now, if we really believe that's true, that this book is God's Word, that these words are God's words, then it would be foolish of us to do anything other than emphasize it both in our lives and in our worship, right? There's a reason why when we gather, we open with the reading of God's Word, that everything we do really is a response to what God has revealed to us in His Word. It's the reason the Word is the emphasis of what we do in worship. And it's therefore rational, reasonable for us, if the Bible is God's Word, that we would base our lives on it. I want to note something interesting. We know uh, that Roman Catholics will often look at Mary and exalt her in a way the Bible doesn't. She is exalted. She's been the blessed, gracious uh, mother of our Lord, the one who was able to bear Christ in her womb. The Roman Catholic Church sometimes will, will speak of Mary being sinless, which is not true which will speak of Mary being a perpetual virgin, which is not true. Joseph did not know her until Jesus was born. Then he knew her and they had children together. Or speak of Mary being being ascended bodily into heaven, again, which is not true. But note what Jesus says when a woman, when someone says to him, blessed is your mother. Look over just a few chapters, Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, Verse 27, which is on page 870 of the Red Bibles, Luke records this note. As he said these things, Luke 11:27. as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you were nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. Isn't that a fitting word for what we're reading this morning? As we note how blessed Mary is, and Jesus says to us, but if you want to know what it is to be blessed, realize that these words are God's true words and keep them. 
obey them. So, so that's the first note I want us to see, a note about God's Word, namely, God's Word is true. Now let's look at two truths then about how God acts that we can see from this text. So point number two, God shows grace to the humble and lowly. God shows grace to the humble and lowly. Now, we see in this text right off the bat that Elizabeth and Mary are both humble individuals. They don't see themselves in any way deserving. I mentioned Mary walks in. She greets Elizabeth. The baby leaps in her womb. Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit. Elizabeth begins to prophesy. And note what Elizabeth prophesies specifically in verses 42 and 43. She says to Mary, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then note what she says in verse 43, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? You see, what Elizabeth is saying there is, I am not deserving. Why am I being shown such grace that the one who is bearing the God-man, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah in her womb, why have I been so blessed that she is coming to see me? She is overwhelmed because she sees herself not as deserving, not as meritorious of what's happening for her, but as an object of God's grace. She is humbled. And then note the same thing about Mary. As Mary then is, is blessed by Elizabeth, she begins singing in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for… Here's why she's going to say my soul magnifies the Lord. Here's why my spirit's rejoicing, and know how she frames it in verses 48 and 49. For he has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. She does not say, I am blessed and all generations will call me blessed, for He has looked upon my impressive stature. For he has looked at me and known that I am a deserving woman. No, she says, he has looked upon my, the humble estate of his servant. She sees herself, again, as one who is not deserving, one who is not meritorious, one whom you would not look and say, man, that's an impressive individual. Mary sees herself as the other end of the spectrum. She is humble. She sees herself of lowly estate and the object of God's grace. So we could say it's as simple as that, a lesson to be drawn. Elizabeth sees herself as undeserving, the object of God's grace. Mary sees herself as the same way. But the, Luke doesn't let us stop there. Because as Mary goes on then to continue singing, what she does is she says, what we've seen with Elizabeth, and what I'm saying is true about me, that God has shown grace to me in my lowly, humble estate. That's actually how God acts toward all who are of humble and lowly estate. Look how she begins in verse 50. So, so verse 49 is so personal, isn't it? He who is mighty has done great things for me. But now look at verse 50. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Or look at verse um, 52. Uh, he has, and then note the last phrase of verse 52, he has 
exalted those of humble estate. Or verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. So Mary says, what we're seeing with me, God being gracious to me, though I am of humble estate, so that now from generation to generation, people are going to call me blessed because I've been able to carry and give birth eventually to the Christ child. So she says, this is how God acts from generation to generation. He, um, he exalts those of humble estate. He shows mercy to those who fear Him. He fills the hungry with good things. In other words, if your posture is one of before God, recognizing that He is due your devotion, so that you bow your knee to Him and devote your life to Him. In other words, fear Him, to the one who bows the knee to Jesus Christ, humbling ourselves, being broken before God, to that one who rightly fears God, God shows mercy. To the one who sees himself or herself as not deserving, but that everything that comes our way that is good is simply a gift of His grace, to that one, Mary says, He exalts. To the one who is hungry and knows that before God our posture is one of need, we need what only He can give. We do not bring to the table what we have. We simply bring to the table our need. We are hungry. Mary says to that one, God fills. He provides food. Now, I want to go on and apply this for a second, this reality that Mary celebrates in the song that God shows grace to the humble and the lowly. But before there, I want to show you that she notes the other side of the spectrum as well. You may have noted to, for me to make this point that Mary says that God exalts the humble and lowly, and I've kind of cherry-picked her song a bit, haven't I, in verses 50 and 52 and 53, because she says more than what I've said. So let me now read the other side of it, and we'll get to point three, a second way that God acts, namely, point three, God opposes the proud and lofty. So, on the one hand, God shows grace to the humble and lowly. On the other hand, God opposes the proud and lofty. Now, let's read the rest. After Mary has been so personal in verses 46 to 49, let's read what she says then for us in verses 50 and following. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. But now note the opposite of that, verse 51. He has shown strength with His arm, and He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Mercy for those who fear Him, scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. Verse 52, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He exalts those of humble estate, but He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. Verse 53, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. Now, first of all, I think we can note that seems weird if we really think about it. So, here's the setting. Mary's just been told from an angel, you're going to have a baby, though you're a virgin, and the baby's the Messiah, the one we know as the God-man, Jesus Christ. She goes to see her relative Elizabeth. Elizabeth's filled with the Spirit. She prophesies. She confirms, Mary, this is right. You believed God, and you believed Him, and it's true, and the child you're bearing is my Lord, and Mary breaks out in singing you would expect it to be something like the doxology, maybe. And instead, in her song, she says, God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of her heart, brought down the mighty from their thrones, and sent away the rich empty. 
That's weird, isn't it? But Mary's not alone. You may remember from the text that Ted read earlier, in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel 2, Hannah was a barren woman. Couldn't bear a child. She was sobbing before the Lord one day in prayer, and the Lord heard her prayer and answered her prayer, and she conceived and bore a son that she would name Samuel. 1 Samuel 2 gives us Hannah's prayer right after she finds out that she's conceived and is bearing a son. Now, now let me just, just ask you, when you're getting ready, if you, if you may be a married couple the first time you found out you're pregnant, think about if you said, hey, let's sing together. Maybe you didn't, but if you did, would you sing a song like this? Hannah says in 1 Samuel 2 as she sings, My mouth derides my enemies. Talk no more so very proudly. The bows of the mighty are broken. The wicked shall be cut off in darkness. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them will thunder in heaven. My guess is if you sang after finding out news that you're going to have a baby, that wouldn't be your song. Not many people say the pregnancy test is positive. My mouth derides my enemies. Right? And yet, Mary's song and Hannah's song sound a lot alike. These two unexpectedly pregnant women are both saying things like, my mouth derides my enemies. What in the world? Is the Lord just showing us that when women conceive and their hormones get out of whack that they can say crazy things? No. That's not even a good joke, is it, for a husband, for a husband to make? And so I have not officially made it. <clears throat> no. What he's showing us is the reality of salvation. You see, let me fill out that quote just a little more. In 1 Samuel 2.1, Hannah actually says, My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. In other words, both Hannah and Mary are acknowledging God is bringing about His saving work. Now, as American believers, we live in such an exceptional time and place in world history that God saving His people by judging their enemies feels weird to us. I'm not saying we should apologize for it. In fact, we shouldn't. I think sometimes as American believers, we feel a bit embarrassed that in the course of world history and geographically, we've been in a place where we have not suffered persecution to the degree that many of our other brothers and sisters have. And sometimes I think we're a little ashamed of it, and we shouldn't feel ashamed of it because if you remember last week, when uh, Aaron was preaching, he put together uh, the order of worship. He had us praying for our government officials. Why does Paul instruct us to pray for our government officials? So that we might live a life of peace. God has heard and answered those prayers in a gracious way. Now, He may well in His providence decide for that to drastically alter tomorrow. But we should give thanks to God for the peace that we've seen, for the ability to openly share the gospel without fear that we're going to be arrested for doing so. But I will say, 
the fact that we live in such an exceptional time and place makes it a bit hard for us to understand why a woman who has just received news that she is bearing one who is going to bring the salvation of his people talks about the proud being scattered or enemies being derided. So let me provide a different context for you. Imagine if we lived in a time and place where the enemies of God, say our government, was seeking to kill off the children of all believers. And so you and I are huddled in the basements of our homes, quietly, hoping no one will suspect we are there because we have heard stories of officers walking in, hunting us down, manhandling the mom and dad, forcing them to watch the slaughter of their children in front of them. And let's say we are in our homes, huddled in that basement, praying for our deliverance, praying for our salvation. Do you now understand why salvation not only makes sense in a context of God judging His enemies, but is actually a necessary element of salvation? If we are going to be saved, God's enemies must be judged. This is, in fact, how the whole Bible spells it out. In 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul talks about our final salvation, Jesus Christ returning and us being raised from the dead, what does he say? And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The salvation of God's people involves the judgment of His enemies. We long for the day, don't we, when Satan and sin and death are fully and finally dealt with. It will mean our salvation. This is what Mary is praying. And the enemies of God are characterized by Mary here as those who are proud, as those who are mighty, as those who are rich. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean if you're a believer who's been given much money, you're rich, that that makes you an opponent or enemy of God. Nor does it mean if you're in a position of power, maybe a government official or something, therefore you cannot claim to be a believer because you're mighty. No, no, it's simply a descriptive. Those who are proud, those who are mighty, those who are rich is a descriptive of individuals who refuse to bow the knee to God and see no need for Him. It is often the rich, for example, who do not think they need. It is the mighty who do not think they need to be humble before God. Mary is, is speaking of these terms to remind us that God will judge His enemies. And so she has said, here's how God acts. He opposes the proud, the mighty, the rich, gives grace to the humble, those who are hungry and of lowly estate. And, and this isn't the only place the Bible says this. Let me just give you a, a taste of this. I'll go through these quickly. You probably can't write them down, but if you want to look at the manuscript, you can go online and see it there. Psalm 138, verse 6, for though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. Or Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low but the one who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Or 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourselves with all, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
This is a, a thread, a reality that's traced through all of the Bible, what Mary is noting here about how God works. What this means is then, for us as human beings, there are two paths. Before Jesus Christ, we will either humble ourselves and be reconciled to God, or we will remain exalted in our pride, and He will oppose us as His enemies. Now, <clears throat> it is right for us to say that when we preach the gospel, we make the offer of the gospel to all men. The offer of the gospel, I think that's a fair word, because what we're saying to us is that you can be reconciled to God. God is offering you forgiveness, eternal life. Jesus Christ lived and died on the cross, paid for our sins, was raised from the dead, so that if we repent of our sins and place our faith in Him, we can be reconciled to Him and have life. That is an offer. But the gospel, we would be incorrect if we only thought of the gospel as an offer. The gospel is a demand. Think of Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in his way. That doesn't sound like an offer, right? Kiss the son, lest, you, uh, lest he be angry and you perish in his way. That is a demand. Kiss him, worship him, or you'll face his wrath. And we need to be clear as we speak the gospel to unbelievers, and if you're an unbeliever, as I'm speaking the gospel to you today, that Jesus Christ lived and died and was raised, I want to make clear to you in asking you to repent of your sins and to place your faith in Jesus Christ, that I'm not merely making to you an offer. It is that, but it's more. As an ambassador of Christ, we make to the unbeliever a demand. Bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Place your faith in Him as your only hope. Follow Him as your Lord. Be humbled before Him, and He will exalt you. But if you remain in your pride and will not humble yourself before Him and will not be broken before Him, acknowledging your sin and your need from Him, then you will face His wrath because God exalts the humble, but He opposes the proud. And on the day of judgment, you do not want to face the opposition of God. And so this is then two paths. Are you going to humble yourself and be reconciled? Or are you going to remain in your pride and face His judgment? I plead with you if you're an unbeliever this morning. Humble yourself. Turn to Him in faith. If you'd like to talk to me or somebody else after the service, we would love to talk to you. But I also want to say, for those of us who are believers, I think there are also paths here that the Scripture is encouraging us on one and warning us about another. You see, as believers, even those who humble ourselves before God and by faith trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can still characterize ourselves as those who are proud, as those who do not think we need God, or as those who are humble and know that everything good in us is simply because of His grace. And so, I want to encourage you, if you are a believer this morning, make sure that you are being characterized by humility in your life that knows that nothing good you have is deserved, but that you are an object, that, that, that your life, that you have become an object of the Lord's grace. This is one of my prayers for us as a church, 
we were discussing the day in a meeting amongst pastors, and we were talking about plans, ultimately our hopes to, to build a new sanctuary, and I was just projecting ahead, saying, Lord willing, we'll be around, you know, 20 years from now, 25 years from now, 50 years from now, and so on and so forth. And I'm going to be honest with you, one of my great fears, the thing that I specifically pray for at, for us as a church, is that we would never be lifted up in pride. Because the Lord loves His children too much for us to characterize ourselves with the things that He says characterizes His enemies and not oppose us. He loves us too much to let us be if we exalt ourselves in pride and are characterized by those things that characterize His enemies. In those cases, He is gracious enough to bring us low, isn't He? so that we might be humbled. So one of my prayers for us as a church is, God, make sure we always understand we are who we are by the grace of God. May we never lose sight of that. And as individuals, isn't this instructive for us as well? My mind first goes to our young people, though this is not simply for them, but anytime you're preaching a sermon, if you say something like, hey, young people, they tend to listen. So, hey, young people, um, there's a real temptation, I think, especially when you're young. It can characterize all of life, but especially with your, when you're young, there's a temptation to want to chase after those things that the world applauds. Popularity, I mean, just think of what the word means, right? It means that you are, you're well-known, you're well-acclaimed among the world, Right? So there can be a temptation for us, especially in our youth, I think, to say, I want to chase after those things that are impressive. Well, the things that are impressive to the world is when we are those who are mighty or rich or have little need, right? When, when, we, when we look that we are, are puffed up and exalted among the world, those things are attractive. People don't typically applaud chasing humility acknowledging your need. In fact, just think of this scenario. When you walk into the cafeteria and all the popular people are here, and the kid over there who's very much an outcast, we might say of humble and lowly estate, why is it that you feel in your heart in that moment, I would rather not go over there and be identified with him, but go over there and be identified with them? Isn't it because you want to be the one who is exalted? The one who is known as not having need? The one who is much in yourself? And if you go and identify with Him, then you may be looked down upon. You may be then like the one who is of humble and lowly estate. And I just want to say, if you make that decision to go that way and avoid the one of lowly estate, you are not on the same page as Jesus Christ because He exalts the one of lowly estate. He has identified with us. And so I just want to say to the young people, I think the pursuit, the way I say it is this, it's probably not cool the way I say it, but the pursuit of cool is often the pursuit of hell. And so let us make sure that we are characterizing ourselves that we are adorning ourselves 
with the very characteristics that Mary says God sees those things and He exalts them. Do not chase after those things that God says that He opposes. And if you need a model, there's no model better than this. God the Son did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be exploited, but He humbled Himself and took on the form of a servant, took on a fully human nature so that He might live a perfect life, die for, the cross, uh, on our, die for our sins on the cross. And on the third day, God exalted Him, raised Him from the dead, and He is seated at your right hand. If we today humble ourselves, trusting in Him, acknowledging His grace, He will exalt us in due time. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to come to the table and publicly and visibly acknowledge the path on which we're walking. God, I want to be among those who humble themselves, who know their need for You, and are chasing after those characteristics that You will exalt, keeping our eyes on Jesus Christ who modeled this for us, who paid for our sins, who reigns at the right hand of God. If you're an unbeliever this morning, as we come to the table, I'm going to ask you to abstain. Now, you can abstain from coming to the table by doing one of two, two things. You can just stay in your seats. What we're going to do is we're going to have everybody come forward, row by row. So the first row will come, and, and they'll exit to the outside. They'll come around. We'll have a tray with a stack of two cups. The top one has juice. The bottom has bread. You'll just take one stack of those two cups, return to your seat to the inside of the row. The second row will follow. The third row will follow. If you're not a believer, I want you to abstain from taking this meal. In other words, you can just stay seated while everyone else is walking, or you can get up and walk and then just don't, don't take a serving when you come by. And the reason I don't want you to take is because I want you to come face to face with where you stand with regards to Jesus Christ. And if you're refusing to bow your knee to Him in repentance and faith, then if you eat and drink of this meal, when we eat and drink, we're saying we're identifying ourselves with Jesus Christ who gave His body and shed His blood. If you're not doing that this morning, but remaining in your unrepentant pride, I want you to know that you're not identified with Him, that you've made yourself an enemy of God. But I also, as you stay in your seat, my prayer is that your heart would be humbled and you would think, I want to know Him. I want to profess my faith in Christ in baptism, and then I want to come to the table week by week and show that I am with Him. If you are a believer this morning, this is an opportunity for visibly professing our faith is in Jesus Christ. We're walking in repentance and faith, and as we do that, He will exalt us on that day. So let's take a moment of silence as the pastors get in place, as uh, the musicians get in place, and then we'll come to the table this morning.